at the end of the day, it was like, well, let's just put a rainbow over it. And then the the first roller ran into, then it ran into like an uphill and this, the flow wasn't like, I don't know, it just didn't seem quite there. So then we were like, well, let's make another one the other direction. And then it turned into a nice little launch ramp. But that was absolutely out of necessity to like not be messing with that tree and allow that tree, those two trees to, to continue on because they're not going anywhere. Those trees are protected. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For episode 147, we have Adam McCoy the founder and owner of Treelines Northwest. Adam has been producing trail building specific branded apparel and content for well over a decade now. As you could imagine, we discussed all things Treelines, trail building, and Adam goes deep on a bunch of other stuff, including Retallic Lodge, which is a location that provides opportunities for some of the most iconic heli-accessed backcountry mountain biking on planet Earth. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites, as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. The following commercial may have been produced using AI. Trail One Components, the brand that was created to put top quality mountain bike components into the world while giving back to trails. I wanted to put the Crockett Carbon Handlebar to a solid test before talking about it on here. I put these bars on both of my mountain bikes back in March and have been using them ever since. I've always had hand and forearm issues while mountain biking, and I can tell you these bars are among the best in the industry when it comes to comfort. As a bonus, Use the code TRAILPOD when checking out for a 20% discount on all Trail 1 components. For Kettle Mountain Apparel, there is a new coupon code for the month of October, which is TRAIL20-OCT, which will get you 20% off of all Kettle Mountain Apparel. You can also find these coupon codes and links for topics discussed on this episode in the show notes. Now on to the Trail Effect with Adam McCoy. You know, that was the whole thing was that snowboard shop era when we were doing that and the skateboarding and everything. Snowboarding was slowly blowing up and the mountain biking was kind of still in it, in its infancy of free ride. And my buddies were up there riding uh, up on the hill not far from here, building just the craziest stuff. And they kept trying to get me to come up there and ride bikes with them. And I was like, oh, I don't know, man. I saw like some of these 30 foot ladder drops like way up in the trees with big old borrow pit holes were right in front of the landing. Like you hit the brakes and hesitate, you're going to fall into a pit, big field goal run outs through huge dug fir trees. And I was like, this is a really good way to get injured. And they're like, Oh, you're a motocross guy. You'll be fine. And I was like, I put it off and put it off until a buddy of mine was like, well, Hey, let's go ride this other spot. It's pretty chill. And 
So I pulled my old Trek 8000 like hardtail out of the garage and put some air in the tires and was like, oh, yeah, this is good exercise. And we uh, moved on to starting like to ride up in Galbraith, which was still pretty. It was still like old school skinnies and, you know, like spaced out ladder bridges and stuff. And uh, we would um, go up there and I was riding on the the old Trek with the bar ends and the freaking dual water bottle cages and hitting little jumps and was like, man, this is super fun. And so that's when we, when I decided to get into a, like a little full suspension bike and then that, and then it went crazy. And I was like, okay, this is super rad. Then the whole Whistler era, the early Whistler before A-Line like got really, really sweet and picking up bigger bikes, getting into downhill bikes and stuff. And that was kind of when I started seeing and realizing that snowboarders are the same mentality as uh downhill mountain bike guys and the fact that they like to go really fast and hit jumps you know you're just limited to the trail rather than like the entire mountain of terrain at a ski area but knowing that was like up and coming and you know like all of a sudden all these mountain bikers i just knew it or i'm sorry snowboarders were going to be like getting into this sport as the uh, trail systems progressed and so that's when I, I saw that opportunity to be like, well, let's get a little grassroots apparel brand going, Treelines, which uh, at the time, you know, when you're selling skateboards and snowboards, there's a huge soft goods in, into that business, uh, apparel, clothing, shoes. And a lot of the kids, even if they weren't skateboarders, were like aggressively buying skateboard apparel and shoes. It's kind of like the surf industry, you know, back in the day. People wearing surf, TNC surf and gotcha brand stuff and all that. You know, it was like a huge market. And you go to a bike shop and all you would see is, uh, you know, Lycra and polyester and spandex and stuff. And, you know, none of those DH guys were wearing that. You know, they were wearing Volcom cargo shorts, t shirt, way too much gear, you know, riding in bands. Uh, what were those shoes? The half cabs, you know, like, that was a big deal. So seeing that as an opportunity to kind of be like, Hey, we could just get some casual apparel going that is focused on trail building. That was like the angle, you know, cause anybody can be a snowboard brand or a skateboard brand, just like, Oh, we're a snowboard apparel company. Okay. Well, that's cool. You don't build snowboards and you don't make skateboards or this or that, but you want to try to pop into that industry. And I dealt with a lot of local apparel companies and always gave them the opportunity to like put their stuff in the store, but they would uh, burn out before they even got lit. Yeah. Let's tell, let's put this into context. So yeah, tree lines, I'm based on the content that was coming out. I'm guessing it started in the late two thousands. Yeah. Let's see. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well before trail building became popular, right? Oh yeah. I mean, nobody was like, I don't think too many people were documenting trail building as a skateboarder and a snowboarder, you always, you always had the video camera with the big fish eye lens, you know, you go out skate and film and stuff. And so about the same time we were building trail, we were filming a lot of riding and I was always, always had the camera. I was always getting out, getting shots, sessioning stuff with my friends. And so that's when the video editing was like, you know, coming into play. I had a little video editing class in high school that I had done. And so of course, had my buddy pirate me some uh, video editing software and started just making little edits for Pinkbike and stuff back in 
yeah, back in those days. But yeah, you're right. It's about, it was an underground brand for, oh, I didn't launch it for a year. So I just printed, you know, like a couple of designs and gave them to my buddies, knowing like the whole game plan on that, like the business angle was to create something that people would start to notice and see, but couldn't buy it. Like it was unavailable for one year. I was like, I'm not going to sell it to the public for one year. What I did is I printed up a hoodie, three or four shirts, a sticker pack. And then I sent them out to like the five, like most notable trail builders in the area. And I said, Hey, this is like my mission statement. This is all focused on trail building for like those who are out putting in more time than they are paddling and put the sticker on your truck and wear this shirt if you like it. And we're going to get something started here. Yeah. And with that, you know, you, you've already talked about the content part of it. And that's what actually caught my attention with, with your company tree lines. I would, I want to say it was probably 2011, maybe. And it was builders yeah. versus loggers. And it would have been for the for a shoot the trails fundraiser for the Whatcom mountain bike coalition in Bellingham. Does that sound about right? Uh, you're pretty close on that. So builders versus loggers was actually my buddy, Andy trans. Uh, he was the cinematographer, uh, creator of that. And it was my buddy, Victor and Mason and Aaron Hartford. We had all started building our new trail. Cause the other trail was about to get logged. And Andy was like filming those guys, mostly riding and stuff. And so I didn't make that, uh, I didn't make it to that edit or that film day. I don't know what I was doing. I was, you know, having a baby or something and had to, had to be dad mode or whatever. And, uh, which is fine, but that video, it just went on pink bike. And I don't know if he submitted that to the shoot the trails. Uh, I don't believe so, but that video went pretty nuts on pink bike and when pink bike was super rad no offense to today's content but um they did the you know video of the day right and that video blew up technically the word would be viral i suppose and it made it all the way to like the video of the year but it was like it got beat out i want to say it was like third or fourth place or runner up to i don't know if it was like mac uh skills or matt <laughs> <laughs> better cut that. I don't remember how to pronounce his name, but anyway, somebody won it and they didn't win it, but that video got a lot of views and a lot of hype. And that was, so we did a second edit of that, a follow up on the, the same trail, like the new trail we were building. And, uh, we did enter that one into, uh, the shoot the trails awards and did pretty well, but I don't think any video I've uh, submitted has ever won which is fine. It's not, that's not the point. The point is to get everybody together, have a good time, raise a bunch of money for WMBC, which, uh, shoot the trails is actually this Saturday. So as in like go, tomorrow, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, tomorrow. So I'm going to go, uh, go out in the woods and play with my friends for the day, do some work, trail work. It's been raining a bunch. So the trails are going to be, I think the digging will be pretty good. We think we've received a, over an inch of rain in the last week and we'll go, go do that. And then we'll cruise up there and all dirty up and hang out with the, the homies up in Bellingham and watch the videos. Yeah. And Bellingham's only like what, 25 miles North of you. Yeah. It's about, yeah, I think I can get there in about 20, 25 minutes. It's quick, quick drive. It's like 
pretty cool because you come out of the valley and immediately you drive uphill and you get into these big kind of it, it's like a mini mountain pass uh, you get a little elevation and a lot of trees and then the hills just start climbing up all around you and uh, it's a it's quite a beautiful place and then you roll into the city and bellingham is technically like the third or fourth i think it's the third or fourth largest city in our state which is super weird because it's nowhere near seattle you know by what two hours or so and you know so it's like seattle's the biggest tacoma and then it's uh spokane way over on the east side and then bellingham falls into fourth big college town uh, and the trails are right there i mean you could be anywhere downtown and pedal for like maybe 20 minutes or less uphill on an e-bike even quicker and you can be at the trailhead and then within another 30 minutes or 25 minutes, you could be at the top of the hill and have uh, a lot of options to drop into. I believe they're up to 80 miles of trail. Uh, I could be incorrect on that. Maybe that's total trail in, in the city. Well, and I've not been there, but from what I can tell, and this is, I think, a, a really good gauge is that the trail they have is super high quality. And so a place could have like 80 miles of trail and it could be all like mediocre. And this yeah. is not that from what I can tell. They've got it really well. I mean, it's come so far. When I first started going up there way back then, there was still a bunch of cool trails and they were all rogue and it was pretty unorganized. Uh, I don't remember the name of the club that was kind of trying to maintain that whole end of it, but they were still fun. There was log rides and ski and ease and small jumps everywhere. And then I started building up there. My buddy, Bill Hawk, he was a, a big uh, trail builder, a part of the club up there for years. and he built a bunch of awesome, like really awesome trails. And so every time they had build days, I was like, I was there. I remember a couple of build days. It was like, if it was raining, you have like six, eight people show up to dig. And then things quickly changed when, uh, EB came to town, Eric Brown, AKA EB extreme. And he, yeah, he showed up. I started sponsoring build days through my snowboard shop. I was just like, Hey, I got access to stuff. And Dekine worked really heavily with me back in those days. They would send me boxes of jerseys and gloves and backpacks. So we'd do the build days and everybody get free stuff. And it was just kind of random. It wasn't like any big drawing or anything like that. But when Evie showed up from Seattle, I don't know how it happened, but we ended up with like, I don't know, 60 or 70 people had showed up for this build day. But we had like the the super crew of like builders. So we had all the different guys from all over the area. So we had to get about 12 experienced trail building leaders to like spread that out. And we put down a lot of super high quality work. And uh, that was the beginning of EB, the EB era. And then he had moved to Bellingham and like became like he's like head of trail advocacy in the club now. And he's a full time. It's a full time job for him. That's good. Good, good clubs need that. Yeah. It's an amazing club. It's crazy how many people are, there's full-time trail builders that are paid now. So that place has come a long ways. Well, speaking of traveling, one of the things you pulled out of the snowboard era is your van. Yeah. Yeah. The van and how popular that thing is. Let's talk oh, about the van. Man. It's got a lot of history for sure. It's not nostalgic to a lot of kids and stuff. Uh, it's a 79 Ford Econoline panel van. It's got a 302 V8 in it. I uh, just put a second one in, which is nice and beefed up. Runs good. 
So when I first was doing the snowboard skateboard shop, that van was for running skateboard contests, mostly hauling around skateboarders, you know, throw a little launch ramp in the back, go do stuff with the crew. But a lot of skateboard events probably ran like 30 some skateboard events out of that thing. And then when the trail building came along, it was like, okay, well, we got a nice sweet old van that we can drive up through the bushes and up these roads, throw a, throw a bunch of tools and a bunch of guys in the back. And shuttle rig. So it's fully cargo in the back. There's nothing but walls and carpet. And then I put a bench seat in the front so you can run three, three people in the front, mainly because of my wife and my boy. So if we're going anywhere in the van, we all got a seat belt, you know, I don't have kids rolling around in the back anymore. But uh, yeah, got an R6 uh, bike rack on the back, put a roof rack on it, put some pretty heavy duty tires. It's just a rear wheel driver. You don't need four wheel drive so much if you got some big lugs and you know how to hit the gas hard. Did I see that it has a chain steering wheel? It has a chain link steering wheel. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where that, what, why I thought that was a good idea. I think maybe from Cheech and Chong, you know, the steering wheel was broke. It had a crack in it. I thought, well, if I get in a car wreck, this thing's going to break. So I went to the, the auto parts store in town and was checking out steering wheels in their catalog. And I was like, I want that one. I want this chain link steering wheel. <laughs> it's funny enough too, because that thing is like so dangerous, like, you know, no airbags. So you got this chain link steering wheel. It's like no mistakes allowed. And vans are pretty, pretty tricky to handle anyway. And then when you want to slow down, they like to swerve and fully loaded. Yeah. Put that on there and didn't realize in the van, like the old eighties van vibes is it was, you always had to have a cool steering wheel. I didn't even know about that. So that thing stays on there. I'm not taking it off. So even if I bust my face on it, it stays. Yeah. Well, what have you learned? You know, so you trans, you talked about your snowboard shop and you obviously you're not doing the snowboard shop now because you're just fully doing tree lines and then your Cedar Creek printing, which Correct. is, you know, so what have you, you know, as you transitioned out of the snowboard and skate shop thing, you know, how's the, how's the tree lines brand grown and, and what kind of other stuff have you brought into that, that specific yeah. trail building? Yeah, exactly, man. So with the uh, with the snowboard shop thing, when I did finally release tree lines, you know, I had I've been in the valley. I opened that snowboard shop in two thousand one. I was twenty, um, so probably was like you know ten or so, you know, eight or so years. I mean, we were the largest snowboard shop north of Seattle the whole time. We were we were pretty big, and so we had really huge customer base. You know, I'm raising all these kids from little skateboarders to snowboarders and, you know, apparel was huge. So, you know, just selling shop apparel for the snowboard shop was, you know, how I got into the screen printing. But I always had the intent of like doing like a different brand, a side brand. And so that's why we bought the printing equipment so that I could start, you know, being creative. And you can always just print shirts in the back of the shop. While there's nobody in there, there's sometimes plenty of time to do that. You can walk away from screen printing for hours, walk back to it, get going again. Nothing like the ink doesn't dry or anything super quick. So when I launched Tree Lines, I was I did it on Pink Bike with a website and it actually did really well. My Pink Bike following was still, you know, pretty small anyway, but people were like into it. And so the website sold out like in three weeks. I think I was already like super low on inventory. But I started throwing it on the shelf in the shop because everybody was asking for it and asking for it. And a lot of these kids weren't mountain bikers by any means, but they just wanted to wear it and represent. And, you know, anything new is the cool thing. So 
we were selling shelves and shelves of hoodies and tees out the door. So it was like a really nice overlap. I sold the snowboard shop in 2016, I believe, after 15 years because of the screen printing end of everything got so massive that I was like getting up at three in the morning to go to work, print my jobs, print my own stuff, then open up shop. And, you know, you can only do that for so long before you start wearing out. So at some point, you know, I had to make a decision and I felt like screen printing was making me a lot of money. And, you know, you don't have to depend on like weather or different winters. You have a bad winter. It's uh, you're rolling the bones on a lot of money with snowboard and and uh, stuff like that. Skateboard, not so much, but snowboards, you know, you're you're dropping a couple hundred thousand bucks um, hoping it snows. And so that's a that's a high stress bit. So it was it was a you overlap long enough to where you're like, I pretty convinced that I can go full, you know, full momentum on this and make a living and pay the bills and be a little less stressed, you know, a little less stressed out. And so that was a pretty easy transition. And then I set up the shop back here with a retail front with tree lines on the front and then the print printing going on in the back. So people still had it. It was like, I mean, I never left, you know, I'm still here. <laughs> I'm sitting right where the boots and the bindings were. That was pretty slick. And it, you know, went full blast on the screen printing and uh, pumping the tree lines. And then the website was still producing and then still get to go out and play in the woods. So yeah, really, really slick. And you, your snowboard shop, when you started that, that was like in an era when snowboarding was, especially for filmmaking, was like in its golden era. That was back oh, when, when Forum was going off and MacDog was dropping videos every year. And that was, I mean, yeah. it was kind of like when VHS was kind of transitioning to DVD oh or whatever, you know? 100%. I had to, I had to order both, you know? I'd be like, oh, give me 12 DVD, give me six VHS. I mean, we had, videos were booming back in those days, you know? That was the the way you got your content and the way you got your stoke. Pair, you know, compared to nowadays where it's short reels and everything, it's just gotten smaller and smaller. It so bums me out because it was so much fun making edits and stuff. We had a pretty solid skateboard team and a couple of really nice cameras, the old VX1000 with the fish eye and everything. And I used to fund uh, skate trips for my team, send them to California or whatever on a really low budget, of course. And we would do full like 45 minute movies and we would, uh, we would play them in a premiere at the local theater and we'd pack that place out. Sometimes we made money off of ticket sales at five bucks a ticket. Uh, it was crazy. Good times, but yeah, you're right. The snowboard, when you said that, you know, forum and Mac dog and those days, man, you actually gave me chills. Cause that was like so epic of a time when those guys were just killing it so hard. Yeah. I mean, that was when I was snowboarding a ton myself and I had actually transitioned from skiing into snowboarding around that time. I loved watching those videos, you know, back like the resistance. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> was it true lines? Was that, uh, true. What was that one? There was, yeah. Oh, I can't remember. But yeah, There's so many, I have them all. I have them all. So I, I actually still have, have them on VHS. Yeah. I have a box of VHS in the garage. I've, I did let one of my buddies take a bunch to his, uh, he's got a big sailboat. It's got like 75 foot sailboat. He's a BMX guy. And all they have on the sailboat is a, a VCR and a little TV. And so I was like, Hey man, I'm, I'm not watching these. You can, you can hang on to these for a little while. So. Well, that was in an era where like GoPros weren't a thing. Like you talked, I mean, today it's a totally different world. 
man. So first, first helmet camera, my buddy Isaac bought, um, I don't know where it was from, but it was the guys that you could rent from in Whistler. You could rent their camera setup and take it up on the hill for a day. And it was a pretty big camera. We, we got one way back early on. He, Isaac bought it and you had to have, you had to plug it into a camera. So you had it mounted your helmet and then you had cord come down. You plug it into a camera. He put it in like a Pelican box, drilled holes in it, loaded that thing up. Then there was like a, an additional remote to control it that came on that hooked onto your backpack. And actually that particular camera actually produced some pretty smooth footage. I don't understand how or why not at Whistler, of course, not with all those braking bumps, but we, we got some actually some pretty solid footage riding e, uh, Evo at uh, Galbraith one year. And I was able to incorporate that, but then, yeah, then it was the, it was a little side mount one. The, uh, con- uh, the contour came out. And then I, I was a dealer for uh, Sony had one called the action cam. And then the GoPros came out. I got a whole box of old cameras that I'm just like, well, whatever. I'll just keep them. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're on the topic of film. Let's talk about uh peak to Creek. Cause that's, yeah. Yeah. I look at that. Like I, I don't want this to be a negative connotation, but it was like the original reality TV trail building show. And there hasn't been one since. Oh man. Yeah. So that was Brandon Watts and Chris Grunberg's little brainchild for the Retallic thing. So those two guys, so Brandon Watts is, uh, he's the owner of free hub magazine. And Chris was like head of cinematography and like a whole bunch of other stuff, editor or something along those lines. I'd have to double check. <laughs> Sorry, bud. So it all started my buddy, Bill Hawk, another trail builder, buddy. he's like one of my best buds right now. We hang out and dig a lot together. He was telling me about it. He was like, ah, oh, man, I'm going up to Retallic to scout out some lines for a possible film project, you know? And I was like, Oh man, for real. I'm like, Oh, that sounds amazing. Cause that was back when Riley McIntosh, I believe. Yep. He was up there doing, you know, he got that off the ground, got those, got those trails going and was trying to do his thing. He had started doing his own thing. I thought like out of a different location and then Retallic hired him in and he built a lot of the lower trails, probably with, you know, some of the Retallic build crew and stuff. So they kind of had that going. I think Riley moved on to something else or moved to the to the island or whatnot. And so then at the time it was Mike Kinrad, legend, rampage rider, OG shredder, super awesome human being. And he was up there. He was like head of operations for the mountain bike end. Uh, I'm sorry, Chris Grunberg and Brandon Watts were they would go up there and ski a lot, and they really became tight with Phil and one of the owners. And they were sitting on the back deck one evening and just shooting the shit. And they said, you know what, man, you should let us get a, a crew of like super awesome trail builders from Bellingham to come up here and let's build a trail from the top of Rico to the lodge. And Phil's just like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. And so then that project started. And I remember seeing the Brandon Seminick edit. I think it was uh, Life Behind Bars. And they had done an edit up there with, I remember Evan, the intern was sitting in the hot tub with Kia and it was kind of spoofy because they were like, well, we're digging, we're digging with shovels. And Evan's like, what shovels? And then all of a sudden he shows up with a big excavator and they built those, what looked to be like massive, massive dirt jumps up there in the, uh, the Piccadilly area. So when I saw that, I was like, man, that lodge is sick, dude. Like I totally want to go there. So when Bill told me he was headed up, I was like super jealous. But he came back and said, yeah, hey, we're, you know, 
there's potential for this video series. And then that's when I got the email, uh, you know, maybe like uh, six months later that we were going to do this project and I was invited, but you had to commit to two full weeks. So we did a week in June in the lower elevation stuff and built pork chop sandwiches, which is what we were eating for lunch. And that started, uh, so it was Gandalf's flute and then it was Kia's grinder and then pork chop sandwiches were the trails we built. And so that was the early season and we came back. So that was seven days of just ripping stumps and, you know, mining for dirt, which is actually pretty hard to find up there. The root mats were awful. Like it was like some of the hardest trail building I've ever done. We were doing like eight hours a day straight for seven days. And then the second trip was in August for the peak. And we only had four days to build that, but our reward was three days of riding and maybe a heli drop. The heli didn't show up. I don't remember why, but we were still able to like get up there and ride it. But the, yeah, the, the Rico build was crazy because it's across this mountain face. It's like 8,000 something feet. And we benched for three days straight across this face. And it was so steep. You had to dig a notch just to stand in and then start mining your way down. And we all spread out. There was like 14 of us probably total with our crew and, and then some of their build crew and we would space out and we just kind of like, some of us would go a little higher. Some of us go a little lower and we would just work until we met. So it kind of came out like a very, lots of grade reversals, like a, like a massive downhill pump track on the side of this super steep, super steep hill, two feet of sod, like the, the little grass that grows out of the side of that. You wouldn't think there's any grass up there, but man, that stuff is rooted in so deep. So, you know, my buddy, Chris Looney, he kept saying, Oh, we're just sod farming. But then you'd get into like some actually really good dirt, but lots of shaly rock and stuff. It was a very interesting environment and snow, rain, lightning, all in, all in the same week. Yeah, I was, I was looking at Retalic's website, doing some research before we started this. And that, I mean, Retalic got on my radar when Riley was there because he he released a video. And I want to say that they advertised 6,000 feet of vertical drop. There's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, that sounds about right because the lodge is somewhere around three. Yeah. And I think the, I think the top of Rico is like eight plus of quite a bit. And that's like top to bottom one run. So pretty epic. They were retallic at, well, actually let's stay on Peak the Creek. So, so you guys went up and built, built that literally epic trail. Epic gets overused, I know, but that's a, that's a huge, that's a huge build. Anybody that's seen the, the series, I'll link it in the show notes. And if you haven't seen the series, you should watch it. Cause it's pretty awesome. I rewatched it before this. I've seen, and I watched it when it, when it came out too. But let's talk about like the reception of that and how it, how it was received once it came out. Yeah, the video came together really well. The the whole trip was an epic in itself. But yeah, it it blew up pretty good. I I definitely was super excited to be a part of that. And um the lodge definitely had got a lot of attention from that. There was definitely you know, that was the end of the season, so they I don't know if they were official program yet that year as far as riding goes, but I know the next year and the years to follow a lot of bike companies. That was a huge thing for them is you know, you'd have you know, TLD or transition always was booking up there for, you know, a week and, you know, or at least, you know, a, a trip. And so, uh, yeah, Fox or RockShock, um, they got all these sponsors on those big trucks now. 
so yeah, that was huge. I mean, Pink Bike booked it out. Lots of companies were booking it out. And then of course the guests started coming in. We went back as tree lines, uh, I don't know, seven or eight more times. So that was the, that was the thing. So that last trip I was talking to Phil and was like, Hey man, can we come back next year and build another trail? And he was like, yeah, definitely. And so I, you know, I took the the lead on that because, you know, Freehub's got other projects to do, of course. And, and they actually do go back every year too for their meeting of the minds. And that's like where they get all the different bike industry companies that they work with to come together and ride for, you know, three or four days and just discuss the industry in general. So it, it, it's a real hub for you know, the industry and it, it's so unique in itself because here you have this, you have this 10,000 square foot, three-story lodge with a five-star chef and a bar with, you know, a cool nagling table where you're banging the nail with the uh, rock hammer. And they set up a 27 hole disc golf course. They've got dirt jumps, like a dirt jump, like a nice free ride dirt jump line through the property. Then you go down the stone steps from the lodge to the creek and they, there's like an island in the creek that's got a big fire pit in the middle. And you can go down and dip in the creek after you've been taking saunas or you've been in the, the huge 10-person hot tub. It is just a, an amazing place. And so you get up there, there's like maybe 30 guests max. So, you know, you go to Whistler, you know, you're standing in lift lines, you're paying for hotels, you're paying crazy money for plates and nachos and pitchers of beer. And you know, so people look at the price tag at Retallic and think, oh, it's kind of spendy, but it's like, nah, not really. It's probably about the same. And the experience is going to be mind blown because you've got this whole hill, actually two big mountains now. And then a third peak we put in, Wishful Peak, all to yourself. You can ride for three days straight. You may never, either, you probably won't ride every trail up there. You'll ride all the gems for sure. But yeah, it's, it's been a fun, fun, decade with those guys. Well, and they might be one of the very first actual backcountry mountain bike guide services, especially to use a helicopter. I mean, we would, we would know that as pretty common in terms of like how, how you get skiing and snowboarding, especially in places up in BC and Alaska and that, but to transition that to mountain biking. Yeah, it's wild. And they've really dialed in that heli, that heli program. The first heli was like, little smaller it had a cable that came down and it hooked to like this big metal rack they put the bikes on and then the next time we got the heli it was like somebody had developed these bike racks that mount to the sides like your ski and snowboards and you got three bikes on each side and i believe that the bird fits five people so four four guests and a pilot but you get to the top in like five minutes from the the launch pad it is so fast you're just like, oh, cool. We pushed it last month when we were up there doing work on Texas Peak because of fire danger. We couldn't get a heli. And it took, I mean, it took me like two hours. <laughs> I was slow. I was the old guy for sure, but my leg's still a little stiff and I'm a little out of shape. But yeah, it was a bit of a push. But you know, if you don't want to do the heli program, they'll still drive you and the guides will totally, if people, if you got enough people on board to push to the top of Rico or push to the top of Texas, they'll, They'll get you up there if you don't want to pay that extra a little bit for that heli, but it's totally worth it. What are they using for trucks? So there are these like LMT 
these LMTV light military transport vehicles. So they're like these huge lifted four wheel drive rigs. They're like, I don't know. I swear they sit like five feet off the ground. Yeah. And there's a huge I know the bed truck in the you're back. Talking about. Yeah. They're pretty awesome. They're, and they move pretty good and they just sip diesel. They're, they're very efficient on the fuel and stuff. So they put the bikes up on the roof and then they put in like bus seats in the back. There's a roof over it. They can snap down the sides if it's raining with canvas. And it's actually a really comfortable ride. And you're way up high. You feel like you're like at Disneyland on some ride rolling through the woods. Pretty awesome. Yeah, the company I work for just actually opened. Well, they've had their bike park open for a while now, but they just added one of those vehicles as a shuttle service, you know, to that park. And that's, I mean, that's, it's in the, it's up in the UP in Copper Harbor. So it's, you know, five, 600 feet of vert. Nice. But similar, similar setup. Yeah, they're really pretty awesome rigs. Other than like having to push the bike up the, like, there's like this little tray that goes vertical. You got to push it up. There's a guy standing on the roof of the cab. He grabs it and then he hands it up to the guy up on top. But they have it down so slick. They load those bikes up like faster than you can go grab a, you know, a, a sandwich. So that's what's the what's the drive time to the top then typically? So the the drive to like as far as you can go, depends on which which side of the hill you go, because there's two different networks. But like if you're going to up to the meadows is guitar solo and heavy meadow. And that is like a really special area because it's not super, super steep, but it's full on alpine, you know, it's like spaced out trees and, you know, bushes and shrubbery everywhere. You can see where you're going and it's just the right angle, uh, to where you you get full line, you're off the brakes and you're just riding through these meadows and there's these natural, you know, rollovers where they've put in jumps and airs and cross, cross some creeks and stuff. And then, then you drop into some, uh, some bigger timber, but you go from, you know, from the top, no trees, lots of rock, lots of shale you're looking out and it's like, you're at the top of all the mountains, as far as you can see 360 degrees. And it's pretty, it's a lot of exposure and stuff, but all the trails are built super well. As far as I know, nobody's fallen off any cliffs or anything up there, but, uh, and then you go, so you go through all these microclimates, you know, it's like pretty wild going from all that, you know, exposure to these grassy rolly ridges. And then you're down in the meadows and then you're in the, you know, kind of more spaced out trees. And then all of a sudden you're in the deep, deep, big, tall trees. And before you know it, you're down at the lodge. But with trail bikes getting so much better, especially in the last five years, what are people typically riding? Are people just on typical, like, you know, Enduro 160 mil Enduro bikes, or do you have to have a legit downhill bike? I would assume not now. Yeah. I mean, so we are all, I mean, when we first showed up, we all had big old DH bikes with Fox forties. And then it didn't take long before we were riding, you know, like patrols or I bring my scout up there. I'm getting older. So that bike beats me up a little more. Uh, if we're trail building a lot, when we're up there, I I'll ride my old DH bike to save my hands. And, um, but yeah, you can, I mean, depending on how good of a rider you are, you can definitely ride a 140, 150 all day long. Not a big deal. You might not go as fast, but yeah, I've seen a lot of 29ers, but yeah, everybody's on trail bikes now. Some of the guides are like hardcore DH guys and I I wouldn't blame them at all. You know, they're all fit and they dig every day and they ride every day so they can pedal those things. There's a few like flatter sections like on, on this one trail, but it's still very pedalable. I, yeah, I rode my DH bike mostly last, last month just cause, you know, a little extra cushion and, a, and on the leg, you know, and just, uh, 
keeping it, keeping it like safe for me. Cause, uh, coming out of that injury last year, I'm definitely like trying to keep working. Yeah. Let's talk about trail building in general and your philosophy yeah, behind it. Let's do it. You yeah. Know, we've talked about places you've built quite a bit, but let's, uh, let's go into your trail building philosophy and how you view things and like really what you look for when you're setting out to build a section of trail. Yeah. So the scouting process is definitely the most important. Uh, you want to look at your your hillside in general as a network so that you're not just a bunch of random trails here and there. You kind of want to try to make things connect. And ultimately, you want the longest trail you can get. So usually I'll go straight to Google Earth, even though I know the hill quite well. And I'll uh, kind of start looking at drainages and, and places. Well, where's the clear cuts? Obviously, you don't want to be building in a clear cut. That's just awful. And the maintenance on a clear cut is horrible. The you know, the sun's baking it in the summer and then the winter it's getting washed out. So when you're in the trees, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. In the trees is where you want to be. And then you want to look at like logging maps, zones that are, you know, can't be logged. You want to be, that's, those are ideal places to be. You want to kind of know who's, whose lands, whose different, different uh, land managers and owners have different rules and whatnots as far as like what you can do behind those gates. So you want to kind of be really on point with that. So after, you know, all that, then it's, you know, go out and walk and walk and walk. And so kind of find your drop in point, whether it be, you know, off the side of the road or uh, some old, you know, skitter road that's closed down. Those are ideal because it, you know, motos and stuff don't necessarily get in there as easily. And then, and then it's like, can you make this work from point A to point B? So first it's just a walk top to bottom. You kind of, you can't help but look around and, oh, that's a cool roller there. Oh, there's a nice spot to cross the Creek there. But you know, you, you, a lot of kids, you know, I've seen, they start a line without walking it top to bottom and they get like three quarters of the way down or halfway down and they end up in a marsh or a swamp or a mile of trees and, and, uh, swampy stuff and uphills and it's unbuildable. So then they end up getting frustrated and quit. So that's, you know, absolutely top priority, get top to bottom, couple, so go down it, go back up it, and then start trying to look at trail grade. Like how steep is it? I I'm not a fan of like super steep skiddy line trails. I don't, I like riding them, but building them and the, the sustainability is not ideal. Roller coastery flowy grade reversals are like where it's at, where you do, you dip down, catch a nice catch berm, you start going uphill just as you're losing your speed, it rolls over and then bam, you're back on the speed again. That also adds trail length. You know, instead of just building a straight bench cut sidewalk, you want to have all the dips and dives up and around the trees and give it good flow. But you also want to, you know, make it so you don't have to pedal if possible. Sometimes that's not an option. Sometimes you, you know, there's just a hump in the way and you gotta. So, and in that case, build a sidewalk as smooth as you can, as carry as much speed as possible. So you can maybe make it up that with a couple of pedal strokes and then you're good to go. And then following just routing, then you start looking, Hey, there's a big boulder over here. Can we line up with that and ride over it? Is there a rock roll, maybe a natural cliff drop? You start looking at features. If it plays into the flow of the trail, then by all means, add them in. Tightness of trees, the tightness of the forest, you know, obviously you need enough spacing. You don't want to be like shoulder checking trees and stuff, but it's not like you're, you know, you're not going to go cut down a bunch of trees either. You know, that's like big no, no. 
So yeah, start looking for spacing and and whatnot. And then it's yeah, flagging, flag it up, and then then it's go time on uh like first pass is what we call it. If I'm not mistaken, everything you're doing is hand built, right? Correct. Yeah, I don't I don't operate a machine. I I probably could, but there are so many people that are so great at that now. If if anybody's looking for machine built trails, I can send them to the Shire. The Shire crew, those guys are killing it up here in this area. They're doing a lot of machine work. So when you have pretty your soils are pretty conducive to actually hand building in a pretty efficient way as well, if I'm not mistaken. So in some places around the country, like hand building is just torture. Yeah. I mean, there's always a lot of lot that goes into hand building. You think you're going to just buff it, you know, rip it in real quick. And then you get underneath and all of a sudden it's rocks or roots or old, old stumps that need to be dug out and whatnot. So sometimes a section that looks like you could get it done in a day turns into three days of work. You know, maybe you got to put some cribbing in, there's some big holes or some washouts, maybe put some drains in, but yeah, it, it takes time and and the thing about trail building that i try to tell people is like don't think you're going to build a trail in a month or two or three i've gotten so patient with it that when i started this project i've been working on the last several years i i wanted it to be a five-year plan but it's looking like seven so you just you just keep showing up i i only dig every other weekend so i work during the week i dig on a saturday and then I do my chores on Sunday, go back to work. And then the next weekend I spend the, you know, spend the weekend with the family and then rotate that schedule. It's kind of like business. Like the businesses that are super successful are the ones that outlast everyone else. That's yeah. I always tell people that about uh, printing, you know, starting an apparel brand and printing shirts is like the key to that is just don't give up. You know, I know you're going to like, you're probably going to print some designs that nobody wants to buy. But don't let that discourage you. Just keep going because the the ones that are still around have been around a long time and that's why they're successful. They outlast and 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 you get better. You know, you get better at your art, you get better at your designs. And so yeah, it's it's the same thing for sure. And you do a lot of a lot of the pictures you post on Instagram, and I think that carries over to Facebook sometimes too, is a lot of Cedar Deck bridges. Yeah. I mean, I don't build as many as say, uh, like some guys, you know, the Canadian guys, they got it made up there. Cause there's just beautiful old growth cedar just laying on the ground that they're able to, they're able to source from. And in our neck of the woods, I feel like cedar was like, maybe it was a hot commodity. They didn't leave a lot laying on the ground. So it's, it's you, sometimes you don't even realize it. And then you're like, Hey, this is, this lump is an old log and you can get into it. But yeah, with, with the drainages and, and the amount of rain we get here, Bridges are like absolutely essential. Ideally, you don't want to be riding through a creek anyway for multiple reasons, like getting your foot wet or, you know, slow down. But, it, you know, these creeks feed, a lot of these creeks feed down into rivers that eventually feed into salmon habitat and everything else. So you really want to like, yeah, you want to respect that, that watershed. And so bridges, most of the bridges we've built were out of necessity. That last bridge we built, that roller coaster bridge, Believe it or not, like, yeah, you think that's like a feature that's just cool, but there was these two giant dug firs growing out of the side of the hill on the, on the line we had to take. We couldn't go lower. We, we couldn't go higher because there was also like sluffy drainage type stuff up there and we would have popped into some springs. And so this was the route. But once we got into it, these two dug firs are conjoined at the base. So, which is unusual. Like you don't see that with dug firs and they're massive. Um, they're probably hundred foot tall trees. And they're so cool. 
And you just can't be like, you can take a few tree roots out here and there, but you can't be taking out like these, these massive root systems that are like holding these trees in. So we had to build a roller coaster over these, like these massive root systems because there's no way you're going to ride through it. We could have like maybe cribbed in a ton of rock or something. But at the end of the day, it was like, well, let's just put a rainbow over it. And then the, the first roller ran into, then it ran into like an uphill and this, the flow wasn't like, I don't know, it just didn't seem quite there. So then we were, well, let's make another one the other direction. And then it turned into a nice little launch ramp. But that was absolutely out of necessity to like not be messing with that tree and allow that tree, those two trees to, to continue on because they're not going anywhere. Those trees are protected. So, and that's awesome that you, you know, you're, you're taking that into account. I know we talk about that in the show, but the reality is, is like, that's something we always have to consider. We're on lands that, you know, need to be respected, whether it's public Absolutely. or private or whatever the, whatever the case is for access, like you, you got to respect it. Yeah. And as much as I like doing like super rad, uh, like wood stunts, you know, and like that kind of stuff. Cause that is like, people really go crazy over that. It's funny how, how like a cool dirt trail is like, Oh yeah, that's pretty neat. And then you, then you roll into like an epic piece of woodwork, but at the end of the day, go, go look up North in the old days of, you know, the free ride era. And those are all dilapidated and falling apart. And, you know, no longer, I mean, some, some guys are actually taking the effort now to like rebuild a lot of those features on the, some of those, you know, legendary trails that need to, they want to maintain that, that style and that flow and they're making them better. They're building them thicker and stronger and they'll last a lot longer, you know, sustainability too. And maintenance, you know, a tree can fall on any piece of woodwork and destroy it. And then you're like, cool, start over building some of those bridges. You know, a lot of them take three full days of sourcing and framing and splitting. And, and so it's definitely a process. Going back to tree lines, you do more than just apparel. You got some other trail building specific items. Yeah. So it's, you know, my brain's always going and, uh, definitely. So I did the bar covers. That was like the first thing for the chainsaws, a scabber. Uh, that, that, you know, I hate, I hate throwing out the name, but I, I was in my snowboard shop and I was looking at the wall and I was looking at the snowboard bags and the Dakin ones specifically. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. And I was like, I'm going to put one of those on my chainsaw. And the, and the main reason for that was like, I ride with a chainsaw in my backpack so much. I mean, the first seven years of trail building, I never left my saw on the hill. I was always like bringing it home. Cause I need, maybe need to do firewood or whatever. I only had one saw. And so it's banging on the back of your $300, $400 TLD. And then you're like, kind of like, you're trying to ride. I mean, you're not trying to send jumps, but there's a few drops here and there that, you know, you can get by with. And then you got the bars bouncing around, hitting you in the neck. And so that was like the first, uh, the first accessory. And then, uh, and then I, well, now we need a little chain bag that holds your file and some extra chains. And so I came along with that, uh, that, that pro- project is in a hiatus right now. People were buying them there. You know, I always wanted to source local, uh, seamstress and try not to have anything made in China. I'm so just like, I don't even want to deal with importing and like packaging and like, you know, all that stuff. And so I just try to keep it local. So there was that. And then the fire pits came along as a necessity because we get massive amount of rain. It's cold. You know, it could be 38 degrees and pouring on you. And so having a place to warm up is super, super nice. Um, it can be a time bandit too. Cause when people start standing around the fire pit, 
Yeah, those started from just some oil barrels. And then everybody was like, oh, I want one, I want one. So then I had a buddy source me a bunch of oil barrels and they're just messy to work with. And so then, okay, how do we manufacture this to like where we can sell these? And so my buddy, Jimmy Wood, he's a, he's an engineer and a trail builder and a mountain biker and a BMXer. And he, he was like, well, let's, let's make one out of like poster board first and get all the measurements figured out and then I'll cat it up for you. And then got to go buy a sheet metal roller and all this stuff. Cause of course I got to do it myself, you know, and I don't weld. So nuts and bolts got to figure that out. And so we prototyped for, I don't know, maybe a year or better and then started manufacturing those and people buy them for all sorts of reasons, you know, with the van life thing and everything. So those have been super successful. I got a fresh batch of metal ordered up. So I'll be, I'll be making those here in the next like week or two and getting them back on the, on the website. How are those for shipping? Yeah, they're kind of expensive. <laughs> yeah. They're uh 17 by 17 by 17 inch box. They weigh uh 20, 22 pounds, I think. So like if I was ship one to, I don't know, so I ship one to Ohio, it's like 70 bucks shipped. So, and then fortunately, like, you know, I have to make them and pay for all the material materials went up. Unfortunately, I didn't take a big hit or I didn't let the client, the customer take a big hit on that, but my, my material costs almost doubled on them. I think I raised the price like 10 bucks, but you know, it is, it's made in the USA in my garage. Actually, I get more done at home when it, when it comes to that kind of stuff, being here at the shop, it's like not as cool. I can go in the garage, throw on some records, blast some music, got my beer fridge right there. If the wife needs me or the kid needs me, I'm like just out the door. So I can crank out a bunch of those over a weekend and have them ready to go. That's, I didn't know that you were actually making all that yourself. I do know, I was just listening to, uh, I didn't get all the way through it, but I got through your first, so you were on another podcast, your mar- a marketing podcast, and I got through episode 69, which I laughed at when you sent back, oh, I think it's episode 69. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. That's my buddy, uh, Jay, Jay Oaks, him and his wife do marketing breakthrough. And it's mostly, it's all business related stuff for sure. And he's like a marketing guru. And so... It was fun to have that with them and like bounce ideas back and forth and tell the story. So, yeah. And I, I just, I didn't catch it right away, but I caught later that there is, you're actually a comeback episode of episode 70 as well. Yeah. There's more, we couldn't get through it all. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's up. It, it is. Cause I was listening to it. I didn't get through all of that one, but I got through the part where you guys were doing like during COVID, were you doing cooking? Yeah. Stuff, cooking videos. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, my wife is an amazing, uh, cook. Uh, I call her a chef, but she doesn't work at a restaurant. So, and she's, she gets it done real well, does everything from scratch. And so during COVID, you know, we were getting kind of like, we were, well, we, people were buying stuff online. So we were busy kind of with that, but my print shop was totally shut down. And so we had a bunch of fire pits. And so we started doing cooking edits in the backyard and uh, just promoting the fire can in general. And uh, there are some amazing uh, edits on my Instagram page. If you want to scroll down and check them out. Uh, fire pit videos and we still do those. Uh, I don't know. We're going to fire it. We're going to fire that back up here real soon. We don't do any marketing for the fire pit uh, during uh, summer because burn bans are like so adamant and you know, people, yeah, I mean, there's probably places in the country where there's no burn ban issues, but people, you know, people are sensitive these days to whatever content you put up and and it is really, I mean, it's so sad to see Canada burning and, you know, the east side of our state on fire all the time. It's like become common, California and Oregon too, to where like, I just am like, ah, it's fine. And 
even if uh, there's like you can have a backyard campfire, I just am like, ah, let it let it be. And it's funny because camping season is summer and that's a camping product. And so that's like the time to be selling them. But I, I'm not in a hurry or a greedy to be the big the biggest seller on the on the game. You know, I care about, you know, all that stuff as well. You know, these are our forests. We got to protect them. So I would feel pretty awful if someone bought one and then went and burned down the hill, you know, so. Oh, for sure. For sure. What do you guys have any new products lined up for winter that you're coming out with? Um, as far as like accessory stuff, not so much. Um, I'm always like brainstorming and kicking around ideas. I want to build some little torches, tree lines, torches, <laughs> just like similar to the fire can, like that you can stick in the ground. Um, but I do have a bunch of new designs I'm about to drop. So I got, I just got to finish up the artwork for those and get the the products in here. Uh, it's every weekend. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll start drawing tonight. And they're like, oh, I'm so tired. I'll just do it tomorrow. And once I get the pen out and the headphones on and the music going, like I, then I'll draw for like, I can draw for three or four hours straight and get, I get really hyped on it. And so, yeah, so we'll, we'll drop at least three or four designs here before, uh, before the middle of next month or so and uh, be ready for holiday, which is, we do really well with holiday sales, like especially even out the front door here, the, the locals will definitely be in here every day buying stuff up and then the online gets pretty busy. So it's a, it's an important, important month, but I try to do, you know, I try to do a new drop every season. Uh, I try, try to do at least three designs a season. So we get about 12 a year, but always got to keep that brain going on what, uh, what, the, what am I going to draw next? You know? And yeah. Well, before we wrap things up, there's something I ask pretty much everybody. And yeah. that is, what do you look for in, in trail communities? I'm gonna call and I'm gonna qualify this with if you had to move to a different community or region for whatever reason, what would be the qualities you would look for when seeking out a different place to live that you'd need that oh, like yeah. you must have to move to? And that can be anywhere over the world. Like you don't have to yeah. don't you don't have to name a specific spot, but what are the things that you believe are important to trail communities? Fantastic. Okay, so the most important thing is the dirt, dirt quality and the trees. I know that's not community based, but that is like huge to me. And obviously like lay of the hills, you know, but as far as community goes, like, um, you know, a, a strong riding community is super important. Uh, younger, younger people, really important to get the kids involved, have kids hyped on riding. Maybe they got a jump park or a pump track that that's got to, you got to have those building blocks to get them excited. And then having a, Having a local trail club is absolutely key. I work with, you know, WMC quite a bit. I help out with um, some of the, you know, I support some of the other clubs locally. There's a lot going on around here too now. So it's hard for me to build with everybody when I'm so deep in my own projects, but I like small town vibes for sure. But yeah, that getting the youth involved is super because kids love to play in the woods and in the dirt. You know, I, I don't know about the current generation of the kids, but I mean, that's, that's all we did when we were kids. We were out kicking, kicking jumps with our shoes up in the campgrounds with the BMX bikes. And, and it was always riding around. Skateboarding was no different. We would take over an abandoned parking lot, start building ramps and stuff. And the whole creative process of making something you can ride and get enjoyment on is so important. And so I always, you know, like, a lot of people ask, Hey, Hey, can I come dig with you? Can I come dig with you? And it's like, Oh man, I've got like 25, 30 people on my build list. Like, and they come and go, but the most important thing is, is that you always got to have that next younger generation on your, on your crew. That's passionate about it. And they grow up and they learn a lot. And and the younger kids are really good builders. They don't stand around and drink as many beers and 
Um, they're super motivated to, they want to get the trail done so they can ride it, of course. But yeah, growing the future is so important. And, and, uh, I work with, you know, my buddy Rob is 30 now. When, uh, when I met him, he was like eight, you know, skateboard kid. So when he was about 19 or 18, we got him into riding bikes. We're like, come ride bikes. You're cool. Like, and then we got him digging right away. And then one of the, one of the older builders, like not old, like way older, but uh, a buddy of mine, like the OG guys that started our zone, uh, Orion. And he was building up there the crazy stuff before I was like, oh, I'm going to come ride with you guys. His kid is 20, I don't know, 23, 24 now, maybe. And he's digging with me now. And I remember when he was a little baby, you know, and Teal, yeah, Teal has been digging with me the last few years and he kills it. Like he absolutely gets stuff done and he's, he, he's got a, you know, an eye for it. He definitely likes to, he wants to build more old school. Like his dad, I can tell you like, I just want to ride some sketchy skid lines and build some skinnies off some big drops. But, um, he puts up with my overly buffed flow trail stuff. And, uh, but I always like to get his insight on it cause he's really smart and, you know, and he's also very passionate about like, Hey man, like, you know, let's try to find some down trees, you know, to build this feature. You know, he's like, no, nah, we can't cut that. You know, it's still attached to the ground or well, that's a cool looking tree. You'll get, a, you'll get like a cedar that falls over in the woods and the roots will still be kind of attached and cedars are crazy they'll start growing the branches vertical out of the log, the horizontal like trunk into new trees. I mean, they're just the the funnest trees and they'll grow out of stumps like nursery stumps and they'll, they'll bend to, to the light and like get all curvy and yeah, great trees. But yeah, so I really, yeah, I take his opinion very seriously and, and treat him as equal age. As far as that goes, you got 40 year old dudes building with 20 year old dudes and 30 year old dudes and, Got some 50, 50 plus guys that are, you know, really legendary in our, in our area. So yeah, you want to span that out for sure. But that's kind of, I, th- I think the the community wise, you want to definitely keep incorporating the youth. Yeah, for sure. It's the youth and the youth in mountain biking is now, I mean, it's, it's real, especially with things like Nike, even though Nike doesn't really push the whole gravity thing that just gets so many more people into riding across the country yeah, and families. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Pump tracks are like popping up everywhere. I mean, you can see little kids on scooters, on coaster bikes, on BMX bikes, you know, riding the pump tracks. We're getting a brand new uh, skate park and pump track in my hometown after 25, I don't know, well, longer than that. They built it in the like the 90s, late 90s. And uh, we're getting a concrete pump track, actual cement. So that is going to really be good for the community in uh, my hometown. Cause our, our old skate park, you know, we helped design it when we were kids and we helped build it. And it was like a, you know, sidewalk driveway guy that did it. And yeah, it was, you know, it was rough. I think it was even swept in spots like broomed for like traction or something. And we called it the cheese grater park. If you fell, you got, you got eaten up, but the grind lines doing the park and it's going to be like smooth as glass and they're pouring it right now. So super excited to get back on the skateboard maybe get a BMX bike. We'll see. We have a, we have an asphalt pump track where I live in it and it abuts up to the skate park. And that thing was installed. I want to say in 2019, if I remember right, maybe 2018, I get a little blurry between those years. Pre COVID we'll say what I didn't really recognize coming as the scooters, man, the kids came out of the woodwork on scooter on razor. I was like, what, where'd this come from? Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Those, they were selling those things at seven 11 back in the, 
like late nineties, early two thousands. But yeah, I, you know, you can hate, you know, like skateboarders always hating on scooter kids and like probably, I don't know if bikers hate on them or not, but it's, you know, it typically, right. Yeah. Typically it's like park etiquette and they're just younger kids and they don't know they're dropping in on you or whatever. And, you know, and, and I used to go along with that quite a bit, but now, you know, with the way the world is now and, and how many kids are just staring at devices and not like getting out and being active. I don't care if my kid wants to ride a scooter. I mean, more power to him. Like it, it's just like, you know, anything new, it's just like when the snowboarders came along, the skiers were like, you're ruining the snow. You're not making moguls, you know, it's like, you know, anything new people are going to hate on, but I mean, Hey, you know, get an incumbent, you know, whatever, whatever gets you out and gets you active. I think that's all that matters. So yeah, scooter kids are nuts too. I've seen some crazy stuff go down for sure in the scooter world. So, well, Adam, before we wrap this thing up, is there any, anything you want to throw out there? Any, anything you, any topics that we didn't touch on that you want to quick hit on? Oh we... man. Um, I mean, I mean, we could tab, we could do the taboo, uh, rogue trail conversation for sure. And just like, uh, Sure. A little like that's a, opinion. That's, a, or, that's or, on you if you want to go into yeah. that route. Oh yeah, man. Well, so, you know, with like more and more people building trails and more people getting into bikes and, and stuff. And, and of course, like there's the, the whole, you know, percentage of who builds and who rides the old no dig, no ride thing and all that, you know, you know, it, it's not, you know, you know, not trying to start wars with anybody about that. If people like find my trail and ride it, that's fine. You know, if they blow it up on Strava, that's another story. But um, respect the trails, respect the woods. You know, if, if the younger generation wants to get out and like start building trail, the first thing they should do is join the local club, learn how to do it proper, learn how to do it right. That's, you know, I did that and I worked with those guys a lot. And then really be mindful of like where you are where you are, if you're going to, if someone's building rogue, if you're going to go do rogue stuff. And then I highly recommend like the lightest footprint, you know, as possible. Don't build 10 foot wide jumps and like dig massive pits and, and whatnots. And, but you know, it's going to happen. And, and, you know, 90% of the trails uh, that are legit are, they're all rogue trails at one time. I mean, our whole forest system in my hometown, they were built by motos and horses back in the sixties. And now they're, you know, they're all, you know, they're all like city park. So, but with, you know, with more and more people wanting to get involved with building yeah, definitely go learn to do it right before you go out and start scouting a zone. You know, we live out, we live in a place where there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of tree farms and so many places where people could get into it. Definitely respect the local builders of whatever area you're in. Don't go showing up on someone's zone and starting to like braid their trail or whatever. We see these things happen and these areas blow up and then they get shut down. And so it's really important that people are aware of that. And, you know, you don't want to put a, a bad taste in in the uh, the landowner's mouth. So definitely like obviously permission is the most important thing. And uh the process of the red tape is daunting and some people just don't want to deal with that, but definitely, you know, don't go cutting a bunch of trees down and, uh, you know, don't be leaving a bunch of trash and like messing with gates and stuff that, you know, shouldn't be messed with. So, you know, that's like kind of, kind of where that goes and definitely keep it, you know, chill as possible. To kind of bring this almost full circle, the conversation yeah. at least. 
I want to say it was Freehub that came out with a video and it might've even been part of Bike Town. I don't remember if it, if it was part of Bike Town or not. Oh yeah. But it talks about like Galbraith and how like that really became a true partnership between the logging companies and the community and what that's oh, really yeah. turned into in a, in, in a positive way for both the logging companies and mountain bikers and the community as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. Janicky uh, Industries, which is a local logging company, and, and they're actually like a big, they're a big deal around here. Um, they also do aerospace as well. They own a lot of the land around here, like a lot of it. And they bought the mountain from, I think the company prior to them was Trillium. And Trillium was like kind of shut down the biking. They were like, okay, we're done with this because the, the previous landowners had, like, had an agreement with the club. The club carried insurance. And it was pretty loose and it was pretty easy going. And then Trillium didn't realize they had bought this bike park. They were just like, what? And and it became a real issue. And that's where the whole WNBC Save the Trails campaign came from was to um, advocate. And, you know, and it got to a point where I think it even came down to like, well, you guys can shut this down, but you're not going to be able to maintain or manage it. So like, you may as well just let us have have control and insurance on it and the do the maintenance to keep it safe. And everything along those lines. And then, yeah. And then I, I believe it was Rob Janicky bought it and made an agreement with WNBC to only, they're only going to log so much. They're going to respect where the trails are, leave some tree corridors, only cross the trails in certain spots. And so that, that became a partnership. And then I do believe even further now that it's become, uh, what's the word when you, uh, the city now has, uh, it's almost like city park. It's like, uh, they got the, uh, gosh, what is that? I'm trying to tip of my tongue. He's an easement easement. Yes. Yeah. So the city city's now like got an easement with, with Janicky. So it, it's a, it's a combination of people obviously, but I, I believe it's, it's the easement will allow it to always be city, uh, city park or mountain bike park within, um, uh, still owned by Janicky, something along those lines, or, or maybe they log it. So then maybe they don't actually own it. So. Either way, it's it's an amazing uh, thing that happened there. And you know, Bellingham's an insane community of mountain bikers. I mean, there are people move all over from all over the world to come to Bellingham. I mean, a bunch of my friends are from Ohio, North Carolina. They all came just to ride and live in Bellingham and ski Mount Baker. And um, it's crazy how many people are transplants. But Bellingham is like... It, it's insane. People drive all the way from Seattle to ride Galbraith like every weekend. I mean, they put in a new parking lot, hundreds of parking stalls, bathrooms, all fundraised through the community, through WNBC. I think it was like, I don't know, it could have been a $400,000 parking lot. I think the original cost was two fifty, and then they expanded it. I don't know. They raised a ton of money. And Shoot the Trails, again, that's a huge fundraiser for WNBC. It's like one of their biggest ones, aside from their uh, their year-end uh, donation one where we do, uh, they, they sell the, the apparel, the members, the membership program, they sell the apparel. And so I've been able, lucky enough to do the artwork for the apparel for the last, I don't know if anybody else has ever done it. I think I've done like seven or eight of them now. And I got to actually get cracking on that next week. Cause EB's wanting it in the middle of the month. So I got some artwork to do, but yeah, the, the WNBC membership program is also another massive fundraiser. So, and that's how they, they do their advocacy. That's how they, uh, pay for their paid trail builders and, you know, materials and insurance and everything else. And there's a whole team of people that work for WNBC now. It's like a business, you know, it's a nonprofit, of course, but it is a business that 
has to be run professionally like a like a good business should. So pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to end this one. Awesome. Yeah. Much appreciate your time and uh stoked to meet you sort of face to face. Hopefully you can make a trip over here and uh and see why you should move. <laughs> There's a couple of things that have came through this podcast. One of the things is a there's a hand there's a quite a few listeners that now their list of places that they need to travel to keeps growing, and so oh. I'll get a text every now and then from someone be like, "Hey, great, now I got to go here," you know, like oh, twist right? their arm, yeah. right? You know, but yeah. but well, it just exposes like you know the, where these great riding communities are, and the Pacific Northwest is a place I've only been to once, and it was not to ride at all, and so I need to get I do need to get up there. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful place in general. I mean, we have the ocean like the Puget Sound and the mountains. And so all the islands and stuff, right? There's all these islands. Some of them have some good riding, like Orcas Island has really good riding. They have a 2000 foot mountain that's got, it's a paved shuttle, you know? Bellingham's got uh, Mount, uh, or the Chuckanut, the Chuckanut Mountains. And that's a 20, that's over 2000 vertical feet in a state park, downhill trail, berms, fricking the whole nine, top to bottom. There's a shuttle service that my buddy, Mike uh, Storm runs. Uh, chucking nut shuttles and then all the way up to Mount Baker, man, there's just, it's just a beautiful place. So you can go salmon fishing, crabbing, prawning, sailboating, and then boom, 25, 30 minute drive. You're already in the foothills and the foothills started around 2,500 to 4,000 feet. So that's, uh, that's notable for sure. And then there's trees, trees make good dirt and good dirt stays moist and pretty tacky you know, if you don't have too many tires on it. So summer's not, summer's riding's pretty good here. It's better than anywhere else I've, that I've heard. So. Well, and you guys can pretty much ride year round, right? In some oh, yeah. places. So. Snow level eventually, you know, it, a couple times a year, snow level comes down to sea level, but it doesn't stay that way long. Cause then a warm front rolls in and, and then it'll spike to 4,000 feet and melt out pretty quick. So I can dig year round unless, you know, unless we get one of those really cold spells. I mean, I think the longest I've been out of the woods was like two or three weeks in the winter. So. Uh, you get down to the bottom of the hill, you know, and, and the hill just bottoms out on the valley floor, which is like elevation 50 feet. So when you're, if you get snowed out on your upper trail work, you can always go do maintenance on your lower trail or, you can, you know, right now we're, we're almost at the bottom of this current line we're building. So we've haven't really had any snow issues the last year. And so it's pretty epic. Yeah. And riding in the mud up here is, it's really good. The trails all drain really well. They're built properly. Tree roots aren't as slippery as you would think they are when they're wet. You get used to it, a little lower tire pressure. And uh, yeah, rain, riding in the mud is not like that, uh, or, or riding in the wet, I should say, is not really that. It's, a, it's just as fun. But um, again, some trails, newer trails, stay off them. A lot of people, if it's really new, can you know, stay off the trails because you just rut them up and beat them up. But a couple, of, a couple of tire tracks down a trail that doesn't get ridden much is like not a big deal. Yeah. And I mean, where I live, it's clay. So it's, it just turns into like an ice rink. Right. Yeah. Slick. Yeah. Clay is crazy. It's crazy to dig in clay too. We've gotten into a little bit of gray clay on this trail because of the bench cut so steep, but it turned to concrete this summer. Like it was crazy how firm it got. Yeah. When it's dry, it it gets hard. It can be fast. Yeah. Yeah. We were like, Whoa, leave some black skid marks on this. Yep. Exactly. For sure. Cool. Well, Adam, I really appreciate everything. It's, it's, uh, you have good, you have, you have a good time watching shoot the trails tomorrow. This is going to come out not long after that. I think I'm gonna, like I said, I think I'm gonna try to get this out right away on Tuesday. Uh, yeah, I look forward to it and yeah, just 
keep me uh keep me on the loop. Well, I'll send you, I'll send you links to everything and where you can share it and whatnot. I always direct people to the website first, because I, I know online yep. isn't always the best, but podcasts are difficult to send people to a certain platform because there's so many different listening apps. You know? I've noticed that. Yeah. With that, with my buddy's company, I was like, what, wait, where do I find it now? Uh, I don't understand. Yeah. So I just send people yeah. to the website or if they know the show, they can, you know, they can find it in, you know, Apple podcasts or Spotify. I mean, Apple podcasts and Spotify are honestly probably account for 60 to 70% of my downloads. Every now and then somebody listens wherever. Yeah. Looking forward to it, man. I'm stoked for you. This sounds like a freaking good little thing you got going here and hit me up when you're uh, ready to take a trip over here for a visit and we'll. Yeah. There are italic. Yeah. Get you set up. Book your, book your italic trips for next year, man. That place is awesome. Uh, Wishful Peak, actually one of my favorite favorite trails up there. It was the hardest one to build. It was solid rock. We swung and chipped at for a week straight, man. It felt like um, it took two trips to finish that one, but you can push that one. It's not necessary to heli it. In fact, only rich people would heli it because it's the third peak, but it only takes like 20 minutes to push from the rig to the top of that thing, maybe 30 or 40. I don't know. It's steep. Yeah. Check that out for sure, man. And, uh, much appreciated, Joshua. For sure. Well, thank you, Adam. You have a great weekend and enjoy shoot the trails once again. And that sounds like it'll be an awesome weekend for you. Yeah. It's a great event, man. A lot of good people there. Cheers, man. Thank you for listening. Our next episode will feature Jake Karsten, who is a trail planner and designer. Jake also happens to be the author of the recently released book titled mountain biking trail development guidelines for successfully managing the process. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect Podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect Podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the affiliate links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>